The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Look with me, if you would, at Exodus 14. This is the story of the passing of the people of God through the Red Sea. And we have taken probably seven or eight times as long to get through the Red Sea as they did that night. Um, But that's all right. Um, We're encouraged uh, to see the mighty hand of God. Uh, And I'm going to pick up the reading at uh, verse 10, and we'll go on to the end of the chapter. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off, so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. 
That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And that really was the point of all of it, wasn't it? That the people of God would fear the Lord and would trust in him. That's always been God's intention, that he would set before us in Scripture sufficient examples that we would fear and trust him, that we would believe in him and that we would be saved. He had in mind, therefore, eternal life for his people, not just for that generation, but for all generations of his people that would hear the accounts of these great things, that they also would fear the Lord and that they would put their trust in him, just as Rahab did and many others. Now, we have seen how God specifically orchestrated or maneuvered this situation. He brought the Israelites to a point of distress where they realized that they could not save themselves. The mightiest army on earth had pinned them against the sea and they were about to be destroyed. And so they were crying out to God and they were crying out in unbelief, not in faith. They were criticizing God really and criticizing Moses, his servant, blaming him and forgetting all the the great things that uh, God had done for them. And so quickly we forget. So quickly we forget the faithfulness of God when we're in distress and in trial. But God commanded through Moses that they should move out into the sea. In verse 15 through 18, he tells them to move on, to enter the sea and to keep making progress to Mount Sinai. Now realize that this is the sign that God had given to Moses that he would send him. Not the... the, uh, staff turned into a serpent and back again or the or the hand turned leprous and then healed again not at all he said this is the sign when i bring the people to mount sinai this is how you will know that i sent you when i complete the journey not when i started and so also it is with the lord and the salvation he's given us through faith in christ he said as we were studying in uh, the international bible study this morning we we're looking at john chapter 1 and uh, God or Christ spoke to Nathanael and Nathanael was amazed when he said this is a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false and, and Nathanael said how do you know me and Jesus said I saw you while you were under the fig tree and he said because I said that uh, I saw you under the fig tree you shall you shall see greater things than that I tell you the truth you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man you will know that I am God You will know that I'm the Son of God, the King of Israel, when I bring you to heaven. That's when you'll know fully who I am, and not until. And so he he said, I will give you a sign when you worship me at this mountain. And they weren't there yet. And so God was going to complete the journey to Mount Sinai. And even more than that, he had promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was going to bring them into the promised land. And only when that journey was finished would his promises concerning the land be fulfilled to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there was still work to be done. And there's a time for prayer, and there's a time to stop praying and move out into the sea. And the time had come for them to move out into the sea. But first, we see the Lord moving out. We see him moving behind Israel and standing guard and separating the people of God from their enemies. In verse 19 and 20, look at it again. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. This is a visible uh, display of God's protection for his people. 
They could see it all night, this fiery pillar. There were at least two million people, I believe, I think you could estimate, two million people at least that needed to cross the Red Sea. Now that takes time. And uh, as any general will tell you, an orderly withdrawal from a battlefield uh, is a very delicate thing, must be handled right, because, you know, if there's not enough protection up front, the enemies are going to crash in on the rear and destroy. And so there must be a strong and firm rear guard. And so there was. None better ever in history. God will be your rear guard. It says in Isaiah 52:12, You will not leave in, in haste, or you will not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And we have both in this text, don't we? We have the angel of the Lord, who had been going on ahead of them, now moving around behind them. And so he is in both positions for us, going on ahead, guiding us, leading the way. He is the captain of our salvation, leading the way, trailblazing for us. That's Jesus Christ, going on before us. But he is also our rear guard, standing and protecting our most vulnerable places. And there he is between the people of God and their enemies, standing there. Also it says in Isaiah 58, 8, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So we see also, in the way that it's described here in this text, how God makes a distinction between his people and his people's enemies. On the one side, there is light, and on the other side, there is darkness. God makes a distinction. He treats his people differently than their enemies. There is light on the one side, and there is darkness on the other. And so I think also it is with the gospel message. To some, it is the savor of life, and to the other, the stench of death. The same message. And so it is also in our day. For us, the message of the cross is the message of salvation. But to others, it is foolishness, a contemptible display. This is also, I think, a visible display of how God works for us spiritually in our lives. You know, you think about what Satan said concerning Job. You remember he said, have you not put a hedge around him and all that he has protecting him? Isn't that what's going on here? Somewhat of a hedge, a wall of protection, so that God's uh, enemies cannot destroy his people? And so I think this is a marvelous thing, and I've talked about it many times before, how much I rely on this. This is protective grace. I spoke about this this morning, that uh, we don't just get grace when we come to faith in Christ. At the beginning, we get grace then, yes, but we need grace every moment. I need thee every hour. We need this constant protection. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if you took on the enemies of darkness alone without God's protection? If God withdrew his protection, if he took down the hedge of protection, if you faced demons and Satan and his temptation and the world and all of your enemies alone without God's help, how do you think you'd fare? You'd be destroyed, you'd be swept away. You'd be deceived, you'd be tricked, you'd renounce Christ, you'd blaspheme, you'd be condemned. But God instead sets up a determination through grace that he will see you all the way through to the promised land. And that involves protection so that you don't face more than you're able to handle. They could not have handled fighting Egypt at that point militarily. 
And so God puts a hedge of protection around us. Also, we've seen before in 1 Corinthians 10:13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You know, sometimes we feel that the temptations we face are unique and nobody else is facing them. Well, that's not true. I really believe Satan only has a finite uh, recipe or, or, or uh, a menu that he, he hands to you. Here, I've got, I've got something I'm going to offer to you. It's going to be the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life. Take your choice. And it's the same thing day after day. It's the same enticements for men and for women around the world. And so the temptations we face are the same. Our brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering, it says in 1 Peter 5. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted what you, beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, will provide a way of escape. And so we have again here in the Exodus a graphic display of the same thing. We have a barrier preventing something more than the people of God could face and the way of escape through the Red Sea. That's a, a very picturesque thing for me. We have God protecting me from the devil and his temptations and he has a way of escape for me to get out of it so that I will not sin against him. We also saw it in, uh, in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And after you have turned back, then strengthen your brothers. Satan has to come begging. He's got to come asking, what can I do to, to harass your people today? He's got to ask permission. He's on a leash. There's a limit to what he can do, and I'm grateful for that. And so we have a visible display of this as the pillar and the angel of God move out and protect uh, Israel's rear guard as they are able to make, in a very orderly way, their way across the Red Sea. Now, in verses 21 and 22, we see the actual dividing of the Red Sea, and Israel passes through. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, it's interesting how it describes here physically how God makes a way in the sea. He uses wind. Now, it's an interesting thing. The power of air, when you stop and think about it, it can lift a 767. I mean, it can lift an amazing thing. If Orville and Wilbur could see what's flying these days, I think even they would be astonished as they had that rickety kind of glider thing with that tiny little engine, you remember? And it was all they could do to fly about 100 feet. And that was the beginning of flight right here in North Carolina. Isn't that exciting? End of this year, right? A couple of Ohio boys, but North Carolina takes credit. But that's all right. I don't mind. I don't mind. But they, uh, this is the place, and we're hoping to go see it sometime later on. But uh, exciting. But you look at that and say, could air really lift something that big and mighty? And yes, it can. The power of air. I think uh, hurricanes can display this. If you see Hurricane Andrew, we need to be praying in reference to the hurricane that's coming our way now, that it would be diverted, because wind has a devastating force when unleashed. But this is a special kind of wind, and I must tell you, from an engineering standpoint, I don't understand this wind. This is a unique thing, because this wind just carves a path right through, and then in some way... I guess just kind of disappears. Because if you could imagine a wind strong enough to carve a path, you try to walk through that wind tunnel, what's it going to look like? I don't have the first idea how that worked. God maybe used the wind to carve the way and then just held it up in some way, but there's some connection there. And throughout Scripture, I think wind is a tool of God's mighty power. It was wind that pushed back the flood of Noah and dried the whole earth to its present condition. Uh, it, was, it was wind that God used to do that. Also, wind that God used to bring the locusts to cover all of Egypt, and then wind that he used to remove the locusts. 
God does amazing things. And if you look, you do, do a study sometime throughout the scriptures on wind, frequently associated with the judgment of God. And Jesus is going to come on the clouds with power and with great glory. I really think it was the sound of wind that Adam heard in the garden. You know, it's translated in the cool of the day, but that's not what it says in the Hebrew. It actually says in the ruach of the day. Ruach is wind. And I think he heard the sound of coming judgment with the wind, and he was terrified, and he went and hid. And so God uses wind here to carve a path in the Red Sea. And so they move through. Now, they must enter that Red Sea by faith. They must step in by faith. And it says in Hebrews 11:29, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Imagine the awe and the terror of the Lord the Israelites must have felt as they passed through this spectacle. Now, God willing, next week, as we talk about uh, the celebration in uh, Exodus 15, and we talk about the descriptions here, I'm going to describe to you the disgust I have with the liberal approach to this passing through the Red Sea. I can't imagine how they can read this and not end up with exactly what happened, a wall of water towering above them on the left and on the right. They have them passing through a swamp, through a marshy reed bed. Now, next week we're going to talk about how in the world that could line up with this account here. I think instead, for the rest of this evening, can we just go with the text the way it's written and see that there was a wall of water on the left and on the right and how awesome this must have been. An awesome display of the power of God and really quite terrifying, the salvation of God. Stand still and you will see the salvation of your Lord. And so they saw it and then they moved through it, passing through. It really is almost a picture of, of resurrection, of death and resurrection as they're moving through that which is eminently capable of destroying them. But I, I couldn't help but think about this from an engineering point of view. Now, I want you to, to rest with me just for a moment, okay? Some of you will enjoy this and some of you really won't. For those of you who don't enjoy this, we're going to get to poetry next week and we'll do the poet thing, the other side of the brain. But we're going to just do the kind of analytical thing tonight. Is that all right? Okay, so imagine a wall of water left and right. Now, earlier this summer, Nathaniel and I went to the Grand Canyon and we got to see, I think, the second largest dam in the United States. And it's damming the Colorado River there. I forget the name of the dam, but I saw it. It was, it was incredibly powerful. Um, and it was, it was convex, kind of against the water. And, and I was explaining to Nathaniel why it had to be like that. And just looking at it, because I still do love, you know, engineering. I love the Word of God, but, you know, I, I, can, I can enjoy a good dam, you know. Um, and and this, is, this is very powerful. I mean that with all respect, you know. It takes an incredible amount of intelligence to figure out how to hold back that much water. I mean, and this dam was huge. It was just 700 feet high, and just the thickness at the bottom was just incredible, and the force and all that. Well, there are formulas for describing what kind of force it takes to hold a wall of water back. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't do it for the dam we saw, so I went to the Hoover Dam, and uh, basically, I'm not going to bore you with the actual formula. Those of you that are interesting, interested, you can come and ask me later. But they estimate that the Hoover Dam is holding back 21.1 billion pounds of force on the whole dam face. 21.1 billion pounds total. Water is heavy. And the deeper it goes, the heavier it gets. Now, 
there are some people that have done some work on this, and I'm going to talk about that next next week, that think that they that they have found most likely the place where where they have crossed the Red Sea. It's in the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, there's a kind of a, a coral pathway, and it's very interesting. And I don't know whether it's true or not. Uh, the people who write about this um, are handling the scripture with reverence and not like the liberals, and so I, I'm interested to find out. But whether that's the place or not, let's kind of go with their estimates that maybe it took, it was about 10 miles across. That makes sense, because it would take, you know, anything longer and you couldn't make it through in a night, anything shorter, and uh, it just wasn't as impressive. I would think about 10 miles across. And let's estimate, and they think right about there, it's 250 feet deep. That's 10 miles of dam, 250 feet deep. Now you wonder, okay, and you need two of them, one on each side, right? One on the left and one on the right. Total amount of force is over 220 billion pounds. That's over 10 times the Hoover Dam. That's uh, about... Um, 1,200 aircraft carriers. That's the amount of force that God lifted or held back that night. <clears throat> Incredible force. And did it in such a way, the power of God, very close, left and right, and then gentleness so that the people could walk through. I, like I said, I don't understand the wind because any wind strong enough to do this would blow the little ones and the big ones away. Everybody blown away. Everybody. So God carved through and then just held it there, you see, as the people walked through. Praise God for his power. And why any so-called Christian commentator on this would want to try to minimize that and try to find a way that it could be worked through the swamp and all that, I'll never know. I want to magnify the greatness of our God. Is he capable of doing this? Of course he is, if he's capable of creating heaven and earth in six days. And so with immense power and yet incredible, almost surgical-like gentleness, he just creates a way for his people to go through. And so they do. But now Pharaoh's army, that's a different case. They are his enemies. They're not just Israel's enemies. We're going to see in Exodus 15, they are his enemies. And he's taking them on. And he's going to destroy them. In verse 23 and following, it says the Egyptians pursued them. I mean, only the hardening that God did on their hearts can explain that. Would you have pursued into that corridor of water after all that God had done? That is, it's just insanity to think. You know, this pillar of fire all night and it's dark on one side and light on the other and, and then it disappears? Hey, let's chase them. I mean, only the hardening of the heart could explain this. I would be running the other way. But in they go, into the corridor of water. The Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army. Now just stop there for a moment. People have spoken before about the anthropomorphisms in Scripture. And they're troubled by them. So it reads like mythology, you know, like from Mount Olympus. Understand, I find frequently when it uses this looking down language, it's a way of belittling humans. A way of minimizing human pride. Like when God came down in Genesis 11 to look at the Tower of Babel. He said, let's go down and look at that mighty tower they're building. Let's go all the way down and see it. It's a way of belittling our pride. They were trying to build a tower up to heaven. And God had to travel all of this distance down so that he might see it. It's a way of belittling us, I think. And so he's looking down on Pharaoh's mighty army from heaven. The immense power of God. The nations are like a drop from the bucket. They're like dust on the scales. 
the most powerful army on earth, and they are nothing to God. And so the Lord looks down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he throws it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Too late. Too late they came to their senses. Too late they came to the conclusion that God was fighting for Israel. Ample warning up to this point, but now at last they see what's happening. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, and not one of them survived. Now, I think it's interesting as you look through the scriptures how often that God works his purposes by throwing the enemy into confusion. It happens again and again. For example, in conquering Canaan in Exodus 23:27, God says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. God is able to confuse the minds of people. He can do that. And so he says, before they even enter the promised land, I'm going to throw your enemies into confusion and they're going to run away from me. They won't know what they're doing. And then uh, remember Jonathan and his armor bearer as they're climbing up much later in Israel's history. Just the two of them go up and say, you know, let's see if the Lord has given them into our hands. If they say, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson, then God has given them into our hands. And that's exactly what the Philistines said. And Joshua and his armor bearer climb up with one sword between them. And they go up there and it's interesting uh, later, after the battle was going in 1 Samuel 14:20, then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle, and they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. And what can explain this? The hand of God. And so Pharaoh, interestingly, thought the Israelites were wandering around in confusion. Look again at verse 3 in, cha in chapter 14. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. That's what Pharaoh thought. But who were the real confused ones? It was the Egyptians. The Egyptians were truly the ones in confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then simply God told Moses to take part in the destruction of their enemies. Stretch out your hand, Moses, and the water's going to flow back and kill all those people. And Moses did as he was commanded to do. All the people died, and they died not at the hand of Moses. They died at God's hand as a result of this water flowing in. Now, it's interesting to me, as I think about it, what a remarkable picture this is of the judgment of God. I don't know how far into that maybe 10 or 11-mile journey the Egyptians got, but it must have been quite far. You know what I'm saying? In order for such a long army to make it in, they had to get in maybe half or two-thirds of the way across. Can you imagine being the front guard of Egyptian army and seeing the wall of water on the left and on the right? And just think, what is holding that water up right now? Well, it's the hand of God. And this brought me immediately to think about Edward's sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The concept is, in Edward's sermon, there is nothing that keeps a sinner under the wrath of God alive even one more instant but the sovereign hand of God, and he can remove it any time that he chooses. 
Listen to Edward's word, words, talking now not about the Gulf of Aqaba or the Red Sea, not about that, but about hell itself. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand on, nor anything to take hold of. There's nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You're probably not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but you don't see the hand of God in it. But look at other things as the good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, and the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, they would, no, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with the great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would uh, have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you up even one more moment. And so that's the picture I get. The wicked enemies of God, prideful and arrogant, pursuing God's people, making it perhaps half or two-thirds of the way across, and God alone holding up the water. And at a certain point, he just removes his hand, and the water crashes in on them. And it says in the text, not one of them survived. This was the salvation of Israel, the destruction of Israel's enemies. We should not think that there can be the one without the other. We must have the destruction of our enemies in order to be saved. But realize that our genuine struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And someday, someday soon, it says in Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for Satan and the beasts and the false prophets and death and Hades to be thrown into the lake of fire along with all of my sinful tendencies and my wickedness, all of it gone forever, and I will never see it again. I can't wait for that. My enemies, I will never see them again. And then in verses 29 and 30, it says, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with, here it is again, a wall of water on their right and on their left. I wonder how much more clearly he could have written it. I, I'm thinking of a, of a wall of water. What are you thinking of? A wall of water on the right and on the left. But we'll talk about that next time. The fear of the Lord, then, is the result. Verse 31, when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.